Hello, welcome to this encore episode of Impact the World for our Giving Month. We have a number of different organizations that my company donates to every month, and a few of those companies are people that I have been able to interview on the show. So for today's Encore show, we are bringing back the episode where I spoke to Justin Hilton about his foundation, Safe Place International. Justin is an old friend, and he is someone who has always moved me with his readiness to be incredibly present and up close and personal in what some would find difficult situations or circumstances. Several years ago, he began his work with Safe Place International to really help marginalized refugees with a focus on those from the LGBTQ community and also single mothers. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Justin. You'll learn more about his story, why he felt compelled to do this work and how this work has organically grown. And if you wanted to check out the organization or consider donating, you can use the link in the show notes. But for now, enjoy Justin Hilton. Justin, thank you so much for being with us. And, you know, there's so many things that I know are probably going to come up in this conversation around the work you're doing, around the life you've experienced and your own spiritual journey. But I just want to share something before we start. Um, Justin and I got connected through a mutual friend, the wonderful Deborah Evans. And I hadn't known you or your now husband, Pascal, very long, but I was very honored to be invited to your wedding. <laughs> and to be at your wedding, I always think, you know, the best weddings, there's usually a certain magic or a certain love energy that can happen in a very amplified way. Mm. But yours was a whole other, whole other level mm. of that. And, and the reason mm. I want to share that is even in the brief times that we spent together in person, the thing that always struck me and still does about you is you have a very active, present, and deep desire to connect, like mm. to really just connect and drop in and be present. Mm. So it was no great surprise that your wedding, the most memorable beginning to a wedding I've ever been at, where we, we were all, all of the guests, we were put into circles and under the wonderful guidance of Rich and Yvonne Dutra, we were asked to eye gaze with every single guest for a certain mm. amount of seconds as Rich spoke us through it and walked us through it. And then we'd move on to the next guest. So it was that beautiful thing at a wedding where you had actually looked deeply into the eyes and the soul of every other guest before the whole thing started. And that just, mm. you know, it both set the tone for the day that you and Pascal invited us all to. But to me, it's so epitomized who you are in the world and what you stand for. Mm, thanks for bringing that moment present. Um, it feels really nice to, to re-experience that connection with you in this moment through the virtual realm. Yeah, yeah. So here we are in the same state in America, but distant. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the thing that since your wedding, I was really struck by was it was a couple of years later, because I believe Safe Place International, you began it in early 2017. Mm. Um, and it has become this beautiful organization. The work you're doing mm. is so important. 
Mm. I'm really happy that I can be a supporter every month. Uh, it, it's just a really great organization. But before we talk a little bit about Safe Place, mm. I thought we'd wind the clock back mm. and ask you really, where did that desire or energy for deep connection and presence first show up for you? Was it there since your very early life or did it come as a response to early life because mm. yeah i'm just curious what your journey into consciousness and awareness look like in the in the early part yeah i think it's it's a it's a great question and i remember as a kid uh eight or nine years old riding my bike around trying to make eye contact with strangers in the street freaking them out and then as i became a teenager um and moved out quite early at 14 um, having extended eye contact with my uh, little band of runaways, sometimes with the aid of LSD, and um, always looking for um, what was beyond the personality, what was beyond the individual, and having some teenage sense of the flimsiness of identity. Uh, so was playing with that then and was in deep search, um, aided by control substances back then and, and by meditation later on. And then I think um, one of the parts that evolved in that was um, really noticing who was missing in these circles of communication. I mean, these of connection. Uh, so as I, you know, navigated the workshop circuit and got to spend a lot of time at Esalen and Omega and, and was even facilitating some workshops early in life, I started to notice that there were whole groups and communities that weren't there. And I, I felt a lot of pain around that. And I think that was the, the impetus to start um, examining uh, issues around inclusion and issues around privilege. Um, but yeah, it was, it was uh, the desire to connect in that pool of oneness where there's no separation that was pulling at me in my early life. And I think that allowed me to um, sort of navigate through some really externally painful situations um, because I could always rest there. Um, even if it was a awkward, messy rest, it was a still a rest. And, and then, you know, as that um, grew and evolved, just realizing that there was also a lot of work to do with how we as individuals um, be together, you know, and a lot of possibilities in that realm. How did you find, so being the in, 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 invitee, if you like, or, or the, the one to give the invitation of this presence, this eye contact, which of course is just a, a way of a, the kind of doorway to the deeper connection. How, how did you find people as receptive or non-receptive to that? Like what were your what were the experiences you were noticing when you did that with people, both, you know, the, the ones who would connect and the ones who wouldn't? I'm just curious. It certainly sorts people out really fast, you know. So the ones that are up for it are, are really up for it and have often been looking for that as well. And the ones that are not up for it just think you're nuts and, and get away quickly. So um, uh, I think, you know, some of my early friends – uh, you know, were manic depressive or, or had psychotic tendencies and sort of weren't, weren't able, didn't have enough of an individual to 
contain, but, you know, as a byproduct of that could go all kinds of places. And so, you know, we would, we would connect so deeply and then, um, you know, they would disappear into, into, you know, the darkness of, of psychosis or of, of manic or of, of a deep depressive episode. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, what I found is that most people were fairly defended, um, but that, you know, I would sort of go around looking for that. Um, and I would find people everywhere that were also looking for that, uh, you know, and, and uh, it was, it was always a, a sweet connection, even though there, there wasn't, there wasn't a, a narrative around it then uh there was only a narrative around it sort of later when i you know came to california and discovered the whole subculture that that had you know quite a bit of of story around you know uh oneness and and connecting in that pool of consciousness and that kind of thing yeah yeah and it's funny because that as i'm listening to you i'm i'm remembering that that was kind of my early experience with it it would be Mm -hmm. the first kind of workshops i went to in my 20s -hmm. uh outside say the theater world that i was in as a kid it was Mm -hmm. the first place i went where people were connecting very intimately and then you were also having to learn the dance that if you'd been in a three-day workshop you know, and you leave the workshop and you go back to the train station or the airport or wherever you're going, you, 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 you learn pretty quickly to kind of draw it back down because I, you know, the first few times I'd come out uh, trying to connect with everybody who's like, I'm not in that space. That's not where I've been. That was right. my first awareness of the, you know, the, the normal state and then the heightened state of connection and where and when and with whom those things show up. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, over time, I've learned to, to be a little bit more sensitive and kind uh, with with the, those invitations and, and sense, you know, when they're wanted and when there's a natural sort of um, organic uh, pathway to those connections, as opposed to um, where it's a bit of a jolt to someone. And also mm-hmm. just respecting that... Um, People have the defenses that they do for good reason. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, definitely don't want to be an impetus to having them dismantle those defenses, um, you know, in, in, in hopes of a safety that that is not physically manifested in their life yet. People are yeah. living under dangerous circumstances on every level and internally and externally. And, and so just respecting those limits and those, uh, you know, those conditions that are, are part of living in a body. Totally, totally. So speaking of, you know, people who are, who are vulnerable and I'm, I'm curious, I know safe place in a way is at this point four years old, but for you, this has always been in you, this wanting to help those who are marginalized or, underprivileged or vulnerable. This is something that has been a drive in you your whole life in many different ways, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I know. I think often we, um, we're interacting with physical manifestations of parts of us out in the world. So early on, I worked with uh, street youth runaways and did family reconciliation and 
you know, AIDS education with kids and, and, uh, and just kind of general crisis suicide prevention mm-hmm. counseling with kids. And then I worked with heroin addicts at a methadone clinic. And so, and then, then over the years, I've done a lot of work in schools with kids and then training with, uh, with folks that work with kids and work with other marginalized populations. And I've, you know, uh, sort of made my way around the world, finding those, those folks. And, and yeah, I was just doing freelance philanthropy uh, that sort of snowballed into um, what looked like an organization and, and then was sort of told, you should probably call it an organization so people would have a way to, to participate. So yeah, but, but, but yeah, that's kind of uh, the evolution I think is, is uh, continually finding uh, those parts of myself in, in human form that I could, you know, uh, heal with and through. So how are you feeling about it now? Before we go into the details of what the organization does, like you're four years in, how, how does it feel to you in the now versus say 2017, you know, just the experience that you're having of being one of the custodians and facilitators of this kind of organization? Well, I mean, it's an incredible privilege. It's such a, a beautiful place to be. I think particularly in the last few years when a lot of human darkness was amplified and a lot of uh, sort of self-preservation uh, uh, and self-absorption was really being amplified around the planet. It, it was such a beautiful space to be surrounded by people who were making a decision to put service first, to put other people first, to be attuned to vulnerability, lead with their empathy to to really um, care about other people uh, and find ways to say yes to their desire to not be, you know, um, a prisoner of fear, even when the larger culture was just, um, you know, ringing fear from from the rooftop. So um, it's it's incredible. And also the courage of people that survive horrendous circumstances um, makes me um, love the species more you know to see I mean one of the most touching things for me is is to witness that with uh, the community members that we work with you know um, often will you know help people to get out of camps and they're in a shelter with us and within days they're thinking about well how can we get some uh, more blankets back to the shelter how can we get so back to the shelter how can we um, take care of the people that are still there get them some extra food and to me, this is just, uh, you know, so heartening because I think, you know, we often on the news are bombarded with images of the kind of worst mutations totally. of humanity. And and really the fact is on the ground, there's so much beauty and there's so much generosity and it's it's really prolific. It's everywhere. And it's at every level of society, you know, from the micro acts to huge acts of generosity and service and devotion. And so to be in the middle of that is the best thing ever. Yeah. Like that is just the best. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and it's funny, I, I'm loving seeing more and more independent or bigger outlets starting to put good news out into the world mm-hmm. and transformation news and basically allowing that energy to be seen and to permeate our consciousness rather than the negative or the the fear story or, you know, the, yeah. the kind of very one dimensional and, and usually heavy or dark limited narratives we see. So for someone who 
you know, has tuned into this show and is either watching or listening, and they heard me talk about Safe Place International a little bit in the introduction, how could you describe to somebody who is new to your organization what it is that you're doing and, and who it is that you're working on behalf of? Yeah, so so maybe just a quick little evolution of, of how it happened. So I was doing work with LGBT folks in southern India, and I was working with uh, women and girls, um, helping them get out of institutionalized prostitution and trafficking and and working on, on uh, education of women and girls in northern India and Nepal. How did you get into that? Because that, you know, how did that start? I was traveling a lot around. I love India. I was traveling around Asia and India a lot and found out about uh, all the, the mass uh, network of human trafficking and that, that focused a lot on women and girls and vulnerable communities, poor communities in Cambodia and, and all over. And just started to uh, try to support grassroots organizations that were making a difference around that. And then as I met one marginalized community, I would meet another. And there was just so much richness in, in becoming involved and sitting in circle with these folks and seeing what resources I could bring and just being, you know, being supportive where I could and, and, and going there often, going about every six weeks to India and Nepal and, and you know, in route, coming through Istanbul, which is kind of a favorite city of mine, and, and then starting to learn about the refugee crisis there and, and not really knowing much about it, but just seeing it in the headlines of, you know, the Turkish air flights and then stopping on a layover there and, and visiting a few grassroots organizations and, and, one of them, I was on a three-hour layover, and I went into this one basement. And it was a danky little tiny basement, and there was this beautiful Middle Eastern 22-year-old guy that had kids hanging off of him, and they were laughing and playing and pulling on him, and he was just just such the most, uh, you know, peaceful, sweet, generous soul I've ever seen. And that was the beginning of supporting um Small Things Istanbul and meeting my friend Aus, who later introduced me to many other activists and, you know, brought me to have many other visits and, and support families and getting their children out of, of uh, garment factories there and back in school. And then eventually in one of my visits, uh, a trans woman was murdered in Istanbul. She was beheaded while I was there. And so I came to find out that that people that were escaping from you know, Cameroon or from Uganda or from Iran or from Pakistan and had, you know, come across five countries to find safety were again in danger from the people from their countries that were living, you know, in, in Istanbul and then also the right-wing elements there and that they were often in their ostracization from their, their country and their people were forced into sex work which made them that much more visible and that much more vulnerable. And there were at that time, no shelters in Istanbul, 15 and a half million people and no LGBTQI shelters. So we decided, you know, naively that we would just form one. And it, it took quite a while to find a safe space um, where, where that could happen. And, and we finally rented a five-story building and quickly grew from 14 beds to 21 beds and then did a lot of outreach and, you know, faced um, a lot of challenges from the, the sort of devolving situation in Istanbul with, uh, with the, the coup and then the sort of uh, expelling of foreign NGOs there. 
And at the same time, you know, the work started just kind of in the same organic way in Athens. I went to Athens and met LGBT people that were on the street and really vulnerable and a lot of homophobic elements there, even though, you know, it's Greece and it's part of the EU, still a lot of racism, still a lot of homophobia and tried to rent them a place. No one would rent to refugees and no one would rent to someone who was going to be housing refugees. So bought an apartment there. And then of course that apartment filled up and, and then grew to 17 apartments. And then, you know, um, as we saw the need, we first, it was about protection and, and basic needs, food, housing, medical, legal advocacy. And then we, we really saw the need for affinity, for, for connection, for love, for, for healing. So we started just bringing the houses together for picnics and playing Frisbee. It was like, you know, 10 different languages. So people couldn't really talk to each other. So we would just play a lot of games and we would dance and, and just like, you know, be together. And then we realized, you know, we have to have a community center. It's getting cold. And also this is a large group of people of color in a very racist city, <laughs> in a very public place. So we need a place that's safe. It's safe for everyone to come. So we, we bought a, a building and uh, started, you know, creating a space where folks that didn't have a home that were on our waiting list could come and take showers, do laundry, do internet, um, take classes, do theater, you know, and that kind of thing. And up until COVID, that was, uh, that was what we, that was sort of our center. And so we've grown, grown from there and, and um, had some interesting turns, you know, um, part of how I started in Athens was I was just doing very random work. I would go and call the NGOs and say, you know, is there anyone that needs help? And I would try to help those people. And so I would often go from Athens to Lesbos, which is a place where a lot of refugees arrive. And so I, you know, in one of those visits called uh, this NGO and said, is there anyone that, that, you know, is called out and needs some special attention? And he said, well, there's this one guy, Joseph, and he's called us a lot. He's suicidal and sounds really upset. And he's at this really remote camp. Um, you know, I don't know if you can find him, but give it a try. So I, I did. I went to this remote camp, which was basically like these UN tents in the middle of the woods. And I got out of the car and, and uh, one of the first people I saw was this, um, you know, not very tall Ugandan man with this huge smile and instantly felt family with him. And so supported him and, uh, you know, helped him go to Athens. And the first night he got everything stolen from him. And then he went to go and work for an apple farm and they didn't pay him. And so finally I was like, Joseph, what do you want to do? I want to, I want to, I want to support you in your dream. You deserve to have your dream. The, the backstory on Joseph is he was outed in his village and, uh, you know, once he was outed, they told him to leave the village where he grew up. So he moved to Kampala, the big city in Uganda. And after he left, his sister and his mother weren't allowed to go to church or to school. So they called him and said, please come and get us. We're isolated here. And so he paid the elder of the village and came back to get them. And the night that he came back to get them, um, they were macheted to death and his house was burned. And he fled Uganda. And, and so he carries the pain and the guilt over his family's death. And 
also just the, you know, there's there's a heavy influence of Christianity there. And and so it was like he lost his family and there's there was also the strong message that God was also angry and God was also rejecting him. So um how he eventually reconciled this through many dark nights of the soul was that he was going to honor his mother and his sister's loss by service, you know, and by reaching out and being there for his LGBT brothers and sisters. And, and, you know, so it was him that said, let's create shelters and safe places for these people. And every time I would go to Athens, he would be by my side because he was like my little brother and I want to make sure that he had all the things that he needed. And also um, he would take me to the places where the people were that needed help. Mm. And so he went with me to this camp. Um, we, we, you know, traveled to Lesbos and he went with me to camp. It was February and uh, quite cold. And I'd already been in, in Istanbul and I'd already been in Athens and I was tired and it was seven o'clock and we were visiting with LGBTQI people and trying to work things out for them. And I wanted to go to the hotel and he wanted to spend the night there. And so I, I let him do that. And I came back the next day and he had spent the night with two lesbian women, two gay men and a very pregnant woman in a very wet tent on the side of a hill in a camp that was made originally for 1,500 to 3,000 people and had 21,000 people with inadequate sanitation and no water and just terrible conditions. And so we knew what to do with the two lesbian women and the two gay men. We had a shelter there and, and a group, but there were no organizations we could find that were working with pregnant women. So we brought up paramedic in and she was eight months pregnant and malnourished and the baby had moved into position. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the paramedic was like, you can't leave her here. You can't leave her here. Whatever you're going to do, you can't leave her here. You know, we're talking about 21,000 people and uh, all in really bad shape, but on the floor of the tent, we decided that we were going to change from being an organization that served LGBTQI refugees to being any refugee that was doubly marginalized. That was because she was pregnant from being trafficked. She was raped. Right. And so um, the reason that I'm sharing that with you is that um, Joseph basically adopted her daughter who was going to be called Hope. And there was so much incredible beauty in the sharing of, we, of course, she was not the she was not the last pregnant woman. We opened four shelters subsequently that focused on women with children under two or women that were just about to have birth. And what we saw is that there was this beautiful exchange of the women who look like the sisters and the mothers of these men who had lost their families and who were saying, you are a holy men, never as a man cooked for me and changed the diapers of my baby and stayed up and taken care of me, you know, and, and for the men, you know, ostracized by their communities to have a woman from their culture or that looked like their family say, you know, how could you not be perfect in God's eyes? Yeah. Look at who you've been for me. So what we saw is that, you know, these marginalized communities 
came together and offered each other so much healing and so much, so much deep connection and affinity. And so out of that, I think, um, you know, one of the things that we've really embraced is that connection and deep relationship um, is, is an essential part of uh, the journey back from trauma, the journey back from um, unimaginable pain and, and suffering. Mm, totally. Wow. Sorry, that was a mouthful. No, thank you. <laughs> Take I, a breath now and then. <laughs> no, no, perfect. Because I, you know, I have, I always have a few questions on the side and usually don't need them. And one of the things I was really going to ask you to share was, was as an example for us of what some of the people that you're working with have been through. And that was, yeah. I, I'm curious for you, this is just a slight tangent, but it fits. I'm curious, obviously you're doing work that you feel completely purposeful about and you feel alive with, but are there ever times where either now or in the past, the kind of level of suffering and trauma that you are involved with has kind of taken you off your center for a while, or you've had to, you know, take a breath and kind of come back. Cause I'm, I'm only asking that not, not so much because of what I know about you, cause you seem very built for it for me, but I think I've, I've spoken to people over the years who've said things like, I would love to get involved, but I think it would be too hard on my heart, which I always think you can overcome for sure. But I know that that's often a, a fear for, for certain people. And I'm just curious how, how you've managed to navigate the impact that this will have had on you um, as well over the years. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm in it to be impacted. You know, um, I, I really feel like there's a level of suffering, you know, in our sanitized Western culture Totally. that is just as brutal as what's happening in the refugee camps. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the work that we do is about being affected by each other and being moved by each other, but also realizing that all of that happens in the, the context of, of, of deep love and support, you know, but, but it's not, um, it's not so much about, I'm going to go into those terrible circumstances and how will I preserve my tender heart or my sanity? It's more that, you know, we're all in the soup together, whether we like it or not. And, you know, um, I don't think it's actually more hot in those communities, certainly in, in environments of war in environments where, you know, people are actively being killed. There's a lot of trauma and, and, you know, I, I'm not built for that, you know, but, you know, for the work of, of, you know, working with people that are severely marginalized. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I find, I see myself, I feel myself, I see all my Western brothers and sisters in their pain, you know, and I also see that they have a tremendous amount of strength and light and wisdom to offer, you know, um, there's just a level of, of, you know, self-absorption that, that we are, you know, all a slave to in the West, or many of us are a slave to, I know I've, I've got it. 
you know, what do I want? Does this feel like, is this really aligned with me? Is this the right relationship? Am I fully expressed? You know, and, and it's like really liberating to be with people that are like, yeah, I don't have a place to live. I don't know where I'm getting my next meal, but I'm here with you and I'm grateful and I'm looking in your eyes and there's just an exchange of joy, you know? So I think that it's never a, it's never a one-sided equation. Um, I think anyone that works in this space would say, um, the folks that are coming from privilege are getting the better deal, you know, are, are receiving more, you know. Totally. I, yeah. I, I kind of, I assumed that was what you were going to say. And, you know, the, the people I know who, who have been doing work along the lines of what you do, you know, it's the most alive, purposeful, like, you know, it's the most real. And, and it, it's weird. It takes me back to in my early twenties, going to my first self-development workshops and, you know, I'd come back and describe it to people and be like, what was happening? Well, then this woman was crying for an hour and a half while we all held her and they were horrified. And to me, yeah. I was like, this was real. Like this, totally. I could always feel that in yeah. the room under the surface, hidden under words that weren't matching up with the emotion. So, yeah. so I assumed that was what you were going to say. And I, I actually think that, you know, most people I know who I've spoken to have had that hesitation when they have thrown themselves in, they've been amazed actually how easy it is to kind of align with it or find your strength or actually get strength from the fact that you're in a very alive, uh, very real uh, interactive situation rather than a dead thing. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, living in Berkeley and walking by people in wintertime that we're sleeping on the street and watching other people walk by, you know, there's something about realizing that we've totally been conditioned to not empathetically or emotionally connect to the people around us or our world. And, and that's horrifying, you know, as a, as a dad, you know, when I'm walking with my toddlers, you know, um, I don't want to teach them that there's people that matter and there's people that don't matter. You know, I don't want to teach them through my, through my actions or through my inactions, you know? And so I think it requires that we find that congruency and it's messy and it's hard, you know, because the need is, you know, looks endless and looks dangerous, you know, Mm -hmm but I think it's territory we have to go into mm-hmm. because it's also where our juicy alive intimacy and our connection with the divine lives too in that dangerous place. It's funny, isn't it? Because that, that very self-absorption you just mentioned, it, it completely goes away when you're aligned. Like when you're, yeah. when you're in something that's just flowing through you and it, and it feels like the thing you are supposed to do all of that just disappears but what strikes me it's funny as you were describing the shelters and you know the groups that you're working with and and the the healing that's taking place for them with each other and Mm. their trauma is starting to move but that you're creating these places where they can all be it's really important because you know the energetically how i see it is yeah 
there are people who need help and who need support who aren't getting it. And so you're providing a, a place for that. But the more they become empowered and the more they find themselves again in a more sovereign way than what they've been forced into or pushed into or rejected into, just the ripple effect that's going to have on the whole planet and, and, and oh, yeah. what, what they themselves are then going to embody and how that will energetically change the world which sounds very um what's the word uh woo woo if you like but to me that's how i see energy working all the time so as i was listening to you there's the there's the immediacy of what you're doing which is really important but then there's the energetics of ah a large number of the collective wanted to abandon these people and another group in the collective said no right. no we're not we're not going to do that we're going to recover them we're going to bring them back they're going to recover themselves there's something about leveling the playing field that way that just for me speaks to do what you can. Like if there's something that's upsetting you in the world or bothering yeah. you in the world, it's very painful to stay upset, to stay annoyed, to stay judgy about something. Like it's like turn that energy into some action, you know, however, however it looks, however small, however big. Well, I mean, you're a living example of that. You know, I think that, that you're constantly creating the world that you want to live in you know and i think we share that is is that and it, and part of it is just because it's too excruciating not to do that you know it's too excruciating to live in a world that um you know is is doesn't care and and uh and also it doesn't listen to its impulse that it's its desire to respond mm -hmm. so i think that you you know um you model that so beautifully, you know, when you have a desire to respond, you follow it, you know, and, and you let it have you. And, and this is, you know, this is the opportunity for us. Like there's, there's not, you know, we, no one needs to have a Messiah complex and think that we're going to end, you know, the suffering of humanity. But when we do feel that call inside to reach down and, and give some, some, to money or to make eye contact with someone or to make sure that they're covered by a blanket or whatever it is, or to explain to a child who they are and, you know, what's happening. When we feel that impulse, um, if we don't respond to it in, in, the, in the affirmative, something gets covered, something dies in us, you know? And so I think this is, this is like the opportunity yeah. You know, and, and uh, it, it never, it's never, it, it doesn't cost us. It's uh, always a get, it's a get uh, to respond to that, you know. But it is quite natural to have that resistance or that moment of, oh, this is territory I've not been into, you know, the, it's right. like that jump out the plane moment. Right. The, there absolutely. Is a absolutely. Can, Hang on a second. <laughs> But the, you know, most <laughs> yeah. people who do it. This is a perfectly good plane. Why am I getting out of it? <laughs> <laughs> will this parachute work? I hope so. Um, but, you know, the exhilaration and the liberation yeah. will go through. It's so funny you just said that, and, and it takes me back. I feel like there was a game-changing moment for me around 2016, mm. so five years ago, where it was a series of things that led me to a point where I realized and it was partly, you know, my channel as well said, you have to accept the suffering in the world to be of any use in the world. 
Mm. And I caught the part of me that had been wanting to deny that, you know, wanting to resist totally. it, wanting to not see it too much. You know, I'd see it a certain amount as much as I can handle. And it was really interesting because as soon as I realized like something went off in me and then from then on, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I see this place for, for, for everything it is. And then after a little while, I felt like I became a bit more useful or a bit more productive as a result of that acceptance if you like really? and i think when you're fighting that it's it's very painful for you and it yeah. disables your productivity or your usefulness some you know i i get it comes from trauma it comes from yeah. things that aren't yet in place in our life for us to have that moment but that's a pattern i've seen with many people absolutely and i think that the you know one of the physical attributes of that is denying our own mortality you know, I'm often, I look down at my hands and I say, yeah, one day soon, they're going to be stiff and blue, yeah. you know, and just like really realizing that we're in these bodies that, you know, in no time at all, will be lifeless and, and without spirit infusion. And, you know, and so being present to death allows us to really, you know, jump, you know, because I often think, you know, okay, if I'm looking into this moment from my deathbed or from a time, you know, in a few decades when I can't move my body, you know, what opportunities would I jump to? What kind of joy would I experience in my body rolling around with my toddlers? Or, or what way would I show up and take a risk with the community members? Or in just speaking up, you know, and saying, hey, you know, there's there's a real chance for us to live in a different way together. So I think, yeah, that, that uh, embracing the suffering that there is and embracing also what's, you know, the elephant in the room. It's so obvious, but we all work quite uh, diligently and collectively to deny that we're just, you know, stopping by, you know, <laughs> this is very temporary, you know, and, and these bodies that we've come to love and these narratives that we live through, you know, just, just a little while and they'll be gone. Totally. So true. So true. Um, so I have a question for you about, <laughs> your journey with safe place which i i'm sure there will be people listening or watching who will be inspired by your experience and your journey with this maybe to do their own thing their own yeah. version of what can i do to help how can i be an advocate how can i serve in this way and yeah. maybe a very different area that the viewer or listener want to go to but what mm -hmm. advice would you either give like yourself four or five years ago or someone starting out wanting to go into this kind of this kind of organization, creating something like this that's there to support those who need need the service, the help. What are what are the things that you might share with someone if they were saying, hey, I've got an idea, I'd love to start an organization or a charity in this area? Are there any things that you now know that perhaps you didn't at the beginning? Yeah, well, if I was gonna speak to me a few years ago, I, I might have uh said so to, to go slow and to, to really listen and to, to know that whatever I was doing at a particular moment was enough. Uh, because often um, when I was confronted with enormous pain and need, I would go into my head and think, oh my God, I need to go much faster. I need to be work much harder, do much more to make a difference. I'm not making a big enough difference. But just to, to remember that whatever you're doing is, is almost unquantifiable. 
you know, one, you know, we, we, we all have like the second grade teacher that believed in us or the person that said that one thing that changed our trajectory. And if we're all willing to be that person, it might be just the smallest things. It might just be saying hello. It might just be picking one family that you look out for or one child or one, you know, uh, older person that's living on their own, you know, or are just going to volunteer at the food bank or, you know, or, or just in some way reaching out, you know, so I would just, that that's what I would say is that, that just to be grounded in whatever you're doing is enough and just to listen for what the next step is, but to just watch the tendency to be on egoic and an egoic crusade. Mm-hmm. You know, just to, 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 to keep moving from the head to the heart, like, okay, so what do I need to do now? And is that, re- am I really ready to, you know, open 20 shelters or <laughs> do I just need to like work with the people in front of me, you know, and, and, yeah. and out of that great things will naturally and, and, and in a healthy way grow, you know, and, and the other thing I would say um, is enjoy collaboration, like, one of the the best parts of doing this work is we share with other NGOs. So we have a great partner, Levi's, who gives us tons of great stuff. They gave us 611 boxes of stuff a couple months ago. And we don't have, we only have a hundred people that we shelter. So we, we shared it with all these other NGOs and we have a supermarket that gives us all of their aging, you know, products. And, you know, they're, they're only good for three days. So we share them with other NGOs. And then as a team, you know, collaborating with other, sharing each other, teaching each other and letting other people come in and give us trainings. You know, I think that there's so much joy in not being on a sole mission, but, but saying, you know, I have this, I'm just holding one little piece, one little grain of sand. Um, and that's going to be my contribution. And I'm just going to look to see the ecosystem that I fit into. And then I'm just going to be in that ecosystem doing my piece. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to feel into how I can be a better and better, more surrendered part of that ecosystem rather than, you know, I am like, I am going to conquer this. (laughs) I am going to, I am going to end suffering. You know, I'm going to re-engineer poverty, you know, because it's, it's a, you know, certainly that energy is great for building iPhones and, and um, you know, and, and all kinds of technical advances. And, and it certainly has its place in structural changes in an oppressive culture. Um, but I think also balanced with, um, you know, let's do this together inside of a system that mirrors the planet we would love to save. Like, yeah. Let's listen to how nature works and see if we can do this together in a way that is deeply listening. Collaboration versus domination. And it's <laughs> funny because you, 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 the word you used is the word that I remember all the time. Uh, surrender. Like whenever I've worked with creatives or healers who are wanting to get their thing out into the world and, you know, mm. it's my job to coach them or teach them one of the objections that comes up commonly for us as human beings is 
I'm not ready. I don't know enough. Da da da. And it's and, and the answer is you never will. You'll never yeah. be ready. You'll never know enough. But you have to get in and start swimming. And once you get in, like you said, it, listen. Because if you get in and think that you're in charge, you're on your own. You're you know you're not in relationship to the people you're serving. You're not in collaboration with the team that you're with. But it is the ultimate self growth journey when you commit to kind of giving yourself to something that's bigger than you, but letting that thing change you as it teaches you how to change. And you, totally. you know, that, that to me is the beauty of it, um, of, of, you know, being an active creator or participant in the world. It's like, for me, I used to go to self-growth workshops for many, many years to kind of get my initial healing going and get my engine running. And now I'm like, well, every day is self-growth. If you're, you know, if you're, if you're actively listening and paying attention and responding, and that, that's beautiful to me about the whole thing. Yeah, no, and, and I think, you know, you're a great model of, of the beauty of the divine dancing with humanity. You know, I think that, that what we know from our own experience is that humanity is adorable when it's infused with the divine, that, that this is what we love is imperfection. We love um, all of the quirky, insecure, unhealed parts that are just saying yes and and being infused and and uh, and you know animated by the divine. Like this is this is what it's all about. So I love what you said about this notion of being ready. It's it's kind of ridiculous, you know, because what we actually love about people is authenticity. You know, that's what we love. And, and that comes from, you know, the observer moving out of the way and us just being our, you know, unfinished selves, you know, totally. which is this mixture of like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. And what a wreck, you know, <laughs> both of it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. Uh, which is kind of like 2021 like yeah, yeah. beautiful and a wreck all at the same, you know, and that, totally. that's the other thing that, you know, it took me probably until my thirties to kind of grasp this one, that again, it moves you away from self-absorption. Yes, we're all unique, but yes, we're all totally connected. And yes, we're all com- very uniquely a product of this time. Like this is a time like no other on earth in 2021. And so too will a hundred years from now be when we won't be here anymore. So that that's always fascinating to me, like who who we are in the ecosystem because of the ecosystem. Um, yeah. However individual we might get in our own minds sometimes, it's such right. a such a myth. No, so true, so yeah. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you have two children at home who are probably in charge of you right now. I'm suspecting. Um, how has that how has that been parenting? Um, parenting lately i'm just thinking because you know we've we've everybody's been at home and how how are you finding the journey of parenting because they're so connected yeah well i i feel you know i I, there's no way i would have not gone to greece and and made these trips to europe every month uh like i was doing before covid uh without the pandemic so i'm actually really really grateful that i got this year to just be here every day and and have them know exactly where i am we homeschooled them and we had a teacher come in and there's just something about being in the same house together that's been incredible um they're they're doing preschool now as of a couple months ago 
but um, yeah, no, it's beautiful. And I learned so much from them and they, you know, they keep me honest. They're constantly busting me. They said, you know, they'll say, the way you said that wasn't kind, you know, they'll say, <laughs> they'll sit down and they'll say, I'd like you to say some kind words to me now, or I, I'd like you to slow down. You were too fast with that, you know? And so it's just great because I am constantly saying, you know, you're right. You know, you're right. <laughs> right. You know, and, and they're completely unreasonable a lot of the time, but it's such a joy, you know, such a joy. And, and just, um, you know, realizing that there's no pretending that that who I show up is what they're going to be left with. Like who I actually am is what they're going to be left with. Mm -hmm. So I can't look, I can't act as if, you know, like I actually have to, whatever I think is in the way, move through that and, and be real and engaged and present and alive or not and cop to it. Um, you know, I have, to, I have to show up because this is all I have to offer them is as a dad is, is, you know, myself. And so, um, yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, I think, I think we'd probably agree that, that the impetus for growth is usually great love for another human being, mm. um, whether it's a partner or a child. And, and relationship is what actually pulls us forward to the places we probably wouldn't go on our own. And that's certainly true, um, you know, with being a dad. Yeah, amazing. And this seems sidebar-y, but it comes to me to ask you this, because I know you're friends with many parents. And I'm curious, like, what do you think it would be, would be a really kind way for parents to treat themselves at the moment, because all the parents I've known all my life are yeah. often so hard on themselves and so exhausted, yeah, trying to do everything and and you know and it's it's just such a it's a hard job, and yeah. I, I know especially in this last year with some of the people that we're close to who've got the kids at home and they're not used to yeah. that, just the pressure and I'm I'm curious with all of your work of being present and connecting and. Yeah. I'm curious, and being a parent yourself, like, what do you think is one of the most important things that parents right now in 2021 could could do with or could yeah. help themselves through? Yeah, well, I just think a lot of self-compassion, for sure. You know, and I have a friend that uh, she does unschooling and she's, she's an adamant um, attachment parent. And, and uh, she often will call me and you know, talk about how she's being critical of the terrible things she did. And I said, yeah, well, I feel really great when I get up because I'm, I'm helping them cultivate compassion. You know, like I don't want to give them the idea that them or anybody else is going to be perfect because, you know, they're going to go out of the world. And it's going to be different. And so, um, yeah, I just find great comfort in us being real and vulnerable and, and, you know, being grouchy or short sometimes, or, you know, being impatient and then just saying, yeah, the way I did that is, was, that was not the way I want to be with you. I love you so much. And I'm so sorry that, that, that was rough. Cause they'll really express passionately. Like, you know, you didn't hear me. You just rushed me forward. And, and, you know, and, and it's just really good to stop and say, you know, you're right. You're so right about that. And so for me, it's, it's just part of the journey is really, um, 
constantly screwing up and just being real about it. Like, this is what we're modeling. We're not modeling a utopian world. Um, we're modeling how do you be with all the stuff that comes up in relationship and all the disappointment and, you know, all the, the uh, different wants and needs at a particular moment. Like, like our, you know, I think parents often optimize for one or two things and, and Pascal and I optimize for relationship. We, we want our kids to have deep sustaining quality relationships and so for us, it's like, that's about working, you know, getting down in the mud and working through it, you know, processing it out. You know, she took your train, you know, she, she, she broke your leg out. She did, right. 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 <laughs> you, know, you know. But I love hearing, you know, I love the permission that your kids have to speak to you in that way, because that's what's been modeled and invited, you know, and I, yeah. I, I think... I can, I'll speak for myself, you know, coming from a, a loving family, but not a family where emotional communication was in the air at all. And of course, mm. me being starved, starving for that, it made me do the work I, I ended up doing, I guess. But, um, but I, I just, I love hearing that because that's so important, that level of honesty and vulnerability. And, and because we invite each other to that, you know, I have that experience. Okay. Someone, when I first met <clears> you, I remember, um, I remember meeting you and you were just like, hi. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. oh, 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 I can slow. Oh, okay. Oh, I'll, I'll slow down. And I can, you know, but I had to adjust because you were not the norm. Even mm. in my circle of people where that was the norm, you know, I met you in the context of a restaurant. And, you know, so it's just so interesting that, that I think the permission slips that we give each other, we then birth something that we can then take out to the world and, and it spreads. So it's really important for, for kids to be able to have that freedom of expression and in, emotional intelligence, if you like, or language around it. Yeah, and, and just the level of awareness. Um, I mean, yeah. they're, they're kind of like the minor birds of awakeness, yeah. you know, because there's a lot of violence that goes on with twins. You know, there's a lot of scratching and biting and hitting and stuff. And so, um, you know, often I'll like, you know, restrain one, and and so the feedback will be you didn't need to grab me that quickly or 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 hard you know you you could have grabbed a lot softer you know and and so i can see myself go to rationalization and then i then i just often go you know you're right you know i i had some charge there that was unnecessary or i had some belief that if I grabbed you in a little bit more quicker, harder way that you would get, that was a terrible thing to do. Mm. And so, um, and that's actually not what I'm subscribing to that, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, some, some subtle violence is going to prevent <laughs> violence, you know? So it's great. It's great to sort of be humble and, and constantly, um, you know, realize, you know, I think that, and then we do that for each other, you know, we, we can, kind of call each other to, Hey, you know, look, this is, this is happening with us. Is this what yeah. we want? Is this, yeah. this is what we're committed to, yeah. you know, and just name it in, in such a safe way. And we have, you know, to have that consent in relationship to be like, you know, we're in the sandbox together. You know, we're not, we're not trying to look good. We're just, you know, trying to wake up together. That's, that's our mission here. So I think that that can be a great uh, support. 
it's a relief, I think, when you find that and when you you find someone you're compatible with in that too. I remember when yeah. I first met Stephen and the, the thing that we did at the very beginning was kind of told each other all our horror stories, you know, like all, all the parts of... And, and the funniest thing was we'd tell one and then you'd think... And then the other one, because we were writing for weeks before we actually met, and uh, the other one would go, I loved that you shared that. Thank you. Here's mm. mine. And it would be, and it just built and built and built. And so it's mm. like, oh, wow, this, this, is, this is rich, rich growth territory right here. That's yeah. amazing. That's really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It is the best, isn't it? I, it is. But, but I also know that you have to be in a certain kind of position in yourself or a certain level of support or a certain amount of things in your life for that vulnerability to feel safe and to be supported and and to have had it modeled to you and through you enough times that you know that you can, like you said earlier on, it's not always great to force anybody into an intimate mm-hmm. moment. If, if their belief system uh, their level of trauma, the people that they're around most of the time is not going to support mm-hmm. them popping into vulnerability. You know, it's important all of us find our way with it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, what you described with Stephen, um, I would imagine comes out of an inner inner environment of a lot of love and acceptance, you know, just a, a lot of positive regard internally, which allows you to kind of open the kimono and say, hey, man, I just want to like show you all this stuff just in case, yeah. you know, just in case you want to run now, here yeah, it all is. Totally. You know, because because you're loving yourself and you've reached a peace with with everything inside and and there's just a ton of, of internal compassion. And you know, I think that the you know, important thing to remember is that um, for most folks, their inner world is is not always um, a safe, warm refuge. It's often a harsh, divided place, and often an unknown place where they're afraid of ambushes, you know. And so, you know, this I think it's it's important not to create sort of standards um, yeah. that that um, that are actually you know kind of counterindicated for the kind of environment that's currently existing in their inner world, you know. Yeah, because we never really know what's going on with somebody unless we have such a level of intimacy and transparency that they have shared that with us. And that's, mm-hmm. that's so important, especially at a time like now when volatility and emotional reactivity is high because of everything that's going on on the planet. So mm-hmm. so it's interesting that we're talking about safety and vulnerability. It feels like the perfect kind of place to kind of bring our conversation to a close. But mm-hmm. um Justin, thank you so much for mm. your vulnerability and your being a bastion of that and, mm. and willingness to go in and out of all the things. I know that you, um, you, you facilitated and coached alongside Debbie Ford, who was very much into shadow work. And I know you and Alanis Morissette have co-facilitated and Rich and Yvonne and so many people, but um, that that ability to hold that width of space is is what we need more of in the world and i also just love that you are doing that specifically for the marginalized communities who otherwise wouldn't have the the help or the support that they need right now and you can bet that those people are going to go and do some phenomenal things in the world um for sure to just keep that ripple effect going i agreed agreed and thanks for being the bridge 
of this um, other these other realms and uh, and the very human realm. You know, and just really appreciate your insight and and sort of the the breadth and depth of your insight and your your ability to um, be in all those spaces with softness and humor and gentleness and sincerity and authenticity. And so it's been great to get to spend some time just swimming around with you today. <laughs> Thank you. And, and I will just say, you know, one of the things, you know, I'm doing what I do in the world, but the, the organizations like yours that I can support mm-hmm. with money that helps you guys do what you do in the world, it means so much. Like I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm grateful that, that there are people like you out there doing what you do so that those of us who may not perhaps be able to donate time or be there in physical service, you know, there's a way that we can help. And, and I just think that's, that's a really brilliant thing. So thank you for doing what you do. And for everyone who's listening or watching who would like to take a deeper look at Safe Place International and see what they're doing, you can go to safeplaceinternational.org. And there you're going to find all kinds of information and some great photos about the projects and what's going on over there. And also a way that you could donate if you wanted to or become a regular donor if, if it speaks to you. But Justin, thank you for not only doing what you're doing with Safe Place, but being here to kind of talk to those people who might be at the beginning of their own journey of setting something like this up. Some of the behind the scenes is really interesting to know because it's Absolutely. very specific. Yeah, thank you so much for all the ways that you contribute. Like, you know, it's so impactful and it's so powerful having people like yourself um, have our back, have my back. And and we're a small organization and we notice every contribution and and those brave acts of kindness, like giving your money and putting your money behind supporting someone you've never met um, these are paradigm shifters. And, and, uh, so never want to sort of undervalue the potency of writing a check or contributing to something you believe in. It's, it's a very powerful move. Yeah. And, and equally, you know, I, I, I've got many people in my life and times in my life where money wasn't something I could give, but I could give something else or I could yeah. send a nice email or I could, you know, I could share it with some friends. So there's always a way that we can, we can help, but that, that's the cool thing about us being here as one, one big tribe. Totally. So Justin, lots of love. Thank you. See and you. Uh, to everyone who tuned in today, safeplaceinternational.org is where you can go and learn more. And we will, as ever, put links to the website in the show notes. Take care, everyone, and see you next time on Impact the World. Hi, I'm Lee. I'm an intuitive, a channeler, a musician, and you may know me from my monthly free energy updates that go out on YouTube and Facebook. You may know me from the Impact the World podcast, but I wanted to introduce you to my members community, The Portal. We've been a community now for eight years, and my mission and the mission of my team every single month is to bring you wellness content, metaphysical content, anything that's going to support your life as a sensitive, as a healer, as someone who is newly awakening, but also to ground it in reality. 
So every month we bring you various tools to help you survive, thrive, and expand your life. I know many of you are out there bringing your own special gift or light to the world. And the portal is a hub that we hold along with our community members to support you on your mission. Every month I do a live energy tune-up broadcast. It's 90 minutes long. It allows me to go deeper on some of the energies that month and how they are affecting our specific portal community. I also take Q&A. I answer questions from my intuitive standpoint and I also answer questions from my guides, the Zs, who I channel. These live tune-ups are always available within 24 hours. So if you can't make it live, you will always have the replay to go back and watch again or to use the timestamps to visit a specific question that you heard that you wanted to replay the answer for. Every month, we will bring you a brand new audio recording. I often keep our community at the top of my mind when I'm creating a new channeled MP3 or a new energy alchemy meditation. And these are always scored and supported by the music of sound healer Davor Bozik. I also do several private behind the scenes video diaries. Sometimes these are what we're creating and what's going on here at the studio, but other times it might just be me at home talking about things that I'm noticing, really designed to give you and I an intimate conversation that I wouldn't otherwise put out there into the wider world. Stephen Washington brings you a special body energy update every single month. So Stephen is my husband and he is also an amazing Qigong and wellness teacher. So I asked him several years ago to start creating some body medicine for us. So he takes the themes of that month's energy update and he expands upon them and gives you a sequence of Qigong movements that are very gentle and easy for beginners, but it's a way of alchemizing what we're going through and he does it beautifully, so many of our members love that component. Stephen also has many meditations inside the portal, which you can access anytime, and we are expanding our meditation library as these months go on. You receive a welcome bonus of the Intuitive Power live event. So if you've never seen a live event of ours, we had an incredible film crew document our London Intuitive Power event in 2019 and you'll get all five hours of that content as soon as you sign up. And finally, we curate special monthly Spotify playlists. Two different kinds, music to move you, so things that are a little more dancey, and music to soothe you, things that are designed to help your nervous system calm. We love introducing you to new music, and this is curated by our whole team. The Classics Library is another important cornerstone of the portal. It gives us an opportunity to bring you eight different MP3 recordings from my vast library, but we curate them as to the titles that might be perfect for you at this time. So if you want some extra audio, you can go into the Classics Library and pick a topic that suits you. Alongside several discounts to Portal members, our favorite thing is the energy of our community. So we have a private forum only available to members where you can share with each other, discuss, and learn from each other. So the portal really is a world unto itself and it will keep expanding as the years go on. But there are some of our members who love every single aspect of the portal and there are some who are there just for two or three things. So if you want to try it out for a month and see if it's for you, you can do that because membership is available to cancel anytime 
And we look forward to welcoming you in the portal if you choose to experience what it is that we are curating and creating for you here.